This is a Federal News Network podcast. The U.S. planned withdrawal from Afghanistan comes with huge logistical and contracting challenges. Getting the troops on planes or ships, that's the easy part. With details of what the government and its contractors actually face in fulfilling the Biden administration's new policy, we turn to Bloomberg government reporter Roxana Tehran. Roxana, you have done some pretty detailed work on this. And let's start with how many people are involved in the contracting workforce. So the Defense Department has, uh, Defense Department alone, so we're not talking about other agencies in the U.S. government, but the Defense Department alone has 16,832 workers employed by contractors in Afghanistan, of whom 6,147 are U.S. citizens. And to put that into context, that's more than double the remaining 2,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan contractors in Afghanistan support the military with everything from lodging, laundry, and food, transportation, equipment maintenance, and fuel. So they have to kind of be there to close the door, so to speak, after the troops withdraw. More or less, the Pentagon has been saying that some of the contractors are going to start flying out So the U.S. withdrawal is actually starting. That's a new mission. The U.S. is concentrated on trying to get the forces out. That's the primary mission of the U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And the Pentagon is planning to take some of the contractors with them. The rest, however, are still waiting for marching orders to know when to uh, leave the country, what's going to happen to the contracts, whether they're needed elsewhere in the region. Sure. And if contractor employees do return home, who pays for that? All the logistics of getting them home, the Pentagon or the companies themselves? I think it's a combination. I'm sure the Pentagon, they have they they plan for uh, various contingencies. Right. So I think mostly it will be part of a contract that may have to be rediscussed, renegotiated. We're not able to see the terms of the contracts, to be clear, but that is probably built in in terms of costs. And speaking of the contracts, just give us a sense of how much has been spent there over the years. And you've looked at the last six months or so of spending, and these are big numbers. Right. So since 2002, the Pentagon has spent basically $108 billion on contracted services in Afghanistan. And this is based on the data we have at Bloomberg government. You know, some of the largest vendors with the Pentagon in Afghanistan are Fluor Corporation. They have about $3.1 billion spent uh, on a contract with Fluor between 2016 and January 2021. They spent about $3.1 billion. And then Amentum Parent Holdings has about another $1.7 billion during the same period. These are a logistics civil augmentation program. It's basically an indefinite delivery and quantity contract given in multiple awards. Like I said at the beginning, I mean, they take care of everything from logistical support, from maintenance of equipment to service for the troops, lodging, feeding, um, a lot of equipment maintenance, air traffic control, airfield upkeep, unmanned aircraft operations and maintenance. So it's, it's a wide range of contracted services that these companies have. We're speaking with Roxana Tehran. She's a national security reporter for Bloomberg government. And let's talk about the removal of the equipment that the United States deems that it wants back. I remember back in the major Iraq withdrawal, just billions of dollars of junk left behind because it was too expensive to bring it home or rehabilitate it. The waste is almost hard to look at when it comes to the numbers here. But what about Afghanistan? Do we have any sense of what contractors will be needed to do to get helicopters, tanks, whatever they have over there back to the United States? 
Not yet, actually. We don't know exactly how they're going to do it. The Pentagon has been pretty tight-lipped about the plans as far as contractors are concerned. But as you know, you know, Afghanistan is landlocked. So a lot of it will have to transition through the region. And then a lot of it is also going to go by ship back to the United States. So it's not an easy logistical feat. And as you know, a lot of, you know, equipment is likely to stay in Afghanistan, probably join the boneyard, you know, with the Russian equipment from the 80s. But even in that case, you have to prepare it for the boneyard. You can't leave sensitive electronics in it or whatever else might be of value to some enemy that would swoop in about 10 minutes after you leave to start picking it apart. Right. So we don't actually have any of those details uh, yet. And I know that there's been a lot of concern about the Afghanistan Air Force because we obviously have spent a tremendous amount of money and we've sent Black Hawk helicopters to Afghanistan, which need some significant maintenance and training for the Afghani forces. And so that has been a big concern in terms of who stays behind. There's been some hints at potentially doing uh, maintenance by Zoom with some of these aircraft. So it seems to me that the preparation for how to handle the equipment, how to get it out of the country, what you keep in there, it's just at the beginning stage. Yeah, imagine. Or at least it's not made public. I can just see it by Zoom. Count back 16 rivets and then move up four rivets and there's a little panel there. Take off that rivet <laughs> exactly. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, it's, you know, I mean, the pandemic has taught us a lot and potentially aircraft maintenance by, uh, by video conference. Sure. And, you know, looking at where Afghanistan is, of course, you've got two choices to get the stuff out. It's not going to go through Iran, so it's going to have to go through Pakistan. And so we'll take some cooperation from that country also. Yes, exactly. And also, uh, you know, General McKenzie, the head of the Central Command, has been talking about how the U.S. is trying to get some basing agreements with other countries in the regions, uh, potentially the Stan countries. But the U.S. has no agreements yet. So a lot of the movement, right, a lot of, you know, where you base some of the counterterrorism uh, units, or where you base some of the equipment, some of the logistical support that comes with that has not been determined yet. Some of it might stay in the region and be there with our troops, uh, but we don't know yet where that's going to be. Well, we do know that in other countries, old leftover military gear, as it rusts, turns into some beautiful material for artwork. Yes, for sure. I've talked to a lot of people who have served in Afghanistan, who watched the withdrawal very closely. And the expectation is that we are going to leave a lot of equipment behind. Roxana Tiran is a national security reporter with Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. 
And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community 
uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, 
the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.